0: Hi, I'm Chinny. I'm Astrid. And welcome to It's a Continent, the podcast that decolonizes history one story at a time. So we're here to challenge the common misconception that Africa is a country and essentially appreciate the identity of each nation. Um, and through each episode, we'll be exploring
1: key historical moments which have shaped the continent. Hello, and welcome to a special bonus episode of It's a Continent. Hello. I'm so excited for this conversation. where do we even start we
0: can't we can't even describe it because there's just a
1: lot (laughs) (laughs) honestly you are in for a special special episode So yes, as a thank you for being with us for the whole of season three, we are excited to share with you our conversation with a very special guest. This season, we've covered many countries that are going through political issues which have been sustained for decades. And in season three, episode six, we covered Africa's longest serving dynasties, the Nansegbe dynasty in Togo. So go back and listen if you haven't yet, and then come back and listen to this one. We also mentioned a TED talk, which inspired us to explore Togo and this TED talk was done by our special guest today.
0: So I'm really excited to have Farida Nabarema on our show today. She's a key voice in Togo's pro-democracy movement. She has been described as a fearless human rights activist and pan-Africanist. And in 2014, she published her book, La Pression de l'Oppression, The Pressure of Oppression, Encouraging Resistance from Those Who Are Oppressed. And in 2011, Farida founded the Foray Must Go movement, organising Togolese youth to stand against the Nansebe regime. And in 2017, she was awarded the African Youth and Young Advocate of the Year. There's more, by the way.
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's such a long, a long list, a long CV. Love it.
0: This CV. Oh, in 2018, Time magazine listed Farida as one of the four crusaders keeping the dream of democracy alive. And in 2021, Farida was named among the 100 most influential people in gender policy. By a political. So, yeah, this is so much. Welcome to the show, Farida. We're so excited to have you on. And just for our listeners who haven't come across your story, our standard first question we normally ask is Where are you from? Where are you really from? Tell us about your background. Thank you very
2: much for having me, Astrid and Jenny.
0: I think that the question
2: of where I am from is very broad because I, I feel like I belong to the entire continent. And if I should track the different ethnic groups that i made from my father and my mother's side. I think I can literally be a citizen of any country in West Africa, but the country where I was born and raised in which passport I hold is Togo. So on that basis, administratively, I can say that I'm Togolese.
0: That's actually so interesting because I haven't really thought it through those lens before, especially when we think about how these West African countries are constructed. So actually we tend to have our roots in multiple countries. (laughs) What was your experience growing up under such an oppressive regime? So under Yema and then his son afterwards?
2: I think that my story will be different from the story of other Tugulis children growing up with their commonalities and I will start with the commonalities. The commonalities are the fact that we grew up in a country where we have one national television which was owned by the government and half of the time the television was dedicated to the president. You have images of the head of state everywhere in town every Saturday and Sunday people perform and dance for the president wearing his uniform. Civil servants, students, military officials, cultural groups, it was like literally a full-time job for people to dance for him on a weekly basis. Every morning from his presidency to his residency, people lined up to clap for him when he's going to work, when he returns from break when he goes back in the afternoon and then when he returns in the evening. And wow. whenever you meet any foreign official, people have to line up from the airport to the presidency to clap and dance on the streets for the president and whichever guest he's receiving. And on January 13th, we, as children, we never understood why, but it was the day of the assassination of Togo's first president. It was like a public holiday in Togo because that's the day Eadema did his coup, our first president, and it was the most celebrated holiday in Togo. So the celebrations and the festivities of January 13 can go over a week. It was mandatory for all students in the public school system to perform, to march at the parade. It was like on a huge holiday. And then we have two days off school and work. Like the whole country comes to a full stop to observe that day, which we are supposed to actually normally not be celebrating because that's the day our first president Sivanis Olympia was killed in 1963 in the very first military coup in Africa. So we grew up in a country where we had a head of state that was literally like the most comparable thing to God. In fact, he was such a scary figure that you don't dare say his name in public. He had multiple nicknames, but people wouldn't refer to him in public. We grew up in that environment where the country was heavily politicized, militarized, and every day you have military patrolling the city. And in the evenings, there was a natural curfew in Togo by 7 p.m. You don't go out or you may never come back home because the militaries, if they arrest you, you may not come back alive, but you do will come up with injuries or end up in jail. So that's the context in which I grew up. And for the average Togolese citizen, that's how they also grew up. But narrowing it down to myself individually, my story, in addition to that, was a story of trauma because my father has been an activist against the uh, Nasimbi regime since he was a student himself in high school. The first time he was arrested, he was in high school. Then he was arrested almost every year when he was in university. In his final year in university, he was actually expelled from the university for life. For, according to the government, attempting to destabilize the state, while all he was doing is just write pamphlets about human rights abuses and denounce abuse and call for democracy. And I, I grew up in a household where... My dad was extremely vocal against the teachership. I, as his kid, saw him leading meetings, holding secret meetings in our home. And that caused him a lot of tension between my parents. And I think till today, the family has been totally driven apart by that. Because my mom was scared of the fact that not only he finds himself in prison all the time, he gets tortured, comes up with severe injuries. But in addition, she received a lot of social pressure. Mm -hmm. And that's even the reason why my mom actually, even though they are legally married, she never used my dad's name, which is very unusual in the Togolese community. As soon as women marry, they just use their husband's name. But my mom wouldn't want to associate openly with him. They wouldn't go to any public event together. My mom would go separate. My dad would go Like It was literally leaving. As the children of two different people, because one was afraid of the life, the other one was living, and the other one feeling like he should continue doing what he was doing. And I think that trauma for me got even worse when my dad was arrested and I was in middle school, I was 13. And I came home finding soldiers searching our house, tearing everything apart and my dad in handcuffs. That was the moment that I realized, to be honest, that something really bad was going on. And... After my dad returned from jail, I became extremely interested in what led him to prison. And the more stories he was telling me, the more revolted I became. And that's literally how I became an activist.
1: Wow. To have taken that trauma that yourself and your family had experienced and then deciding to also join what your father had been doing is incredible what was the trigger point or event which pushed you into action and really wanting a change yeah. for your country yeah
2: i will say that between 2003 when I was arrested in 2005 when he had my dad, died we grew very close my dad and i i will follow him to political meetings initially i wasn't invited i knew where they were having the meeting because i used to be a messenger uh, literally he'll tell me go tell this person that we're meeting here today so I was a messenger and everybody knew me among his circle so I'll just invite myself but in the beginning the reason why I was inviting myself was out of fear that if I wasn't there the soldiers would come and arrest him and you know when you're you are so innocent that you think you're super powerful and then maybe you can stop the soldier doing anything
1: oh so yeah that was your way of protecting him by being there Exactly. So whenever he had meetings and I wasn't
2: there, I get really worried. Especially if it's in the middle of the night, I wouldn't sleep because I wasn't comfortable. But then eventually he realized that and he started taking me along, and he started teaching me more about the history of Togo and even mm. the history of my grandfather, who himself was an activist anti-colonialism, spent multiple years in prison in and out was re-arrested when Iyadema did his school in 63, was arrested again in 67, many more times. So I understood that my dad got that from his father. And even the story of him being educated derives from my grandfather being an activist because my grandfather, as an act of resistance, he refused to send all his children to colonial school. Mm -hmm. And eventually he was arrested for refusing to perform for the colonial powers and he was tied to a tree and it was a community teacher who defended him and got him released and introduced him to the struggle for independence and he joined and as an act of thank you he agreed to let one of his children go to school and that child become my father and my dad literally told me that when my grandfather sent him to school on the first day when he arrived home there was a meeting between my dad my grandfather and my dad's uncles to know what they were telling them in school so every single day when he returned from school he has to tell them everything that happened in the classroom because he wanted to first of all, know what they were teaching the children to ensure they were not brainstorming them. And then he also wanted to learn, literally. And he grew up being so close to his dad that he followed his path and became an activist like his own father, et cetera. So for me, it was like a calling. Following my dad to those meetings was a learning process. But what really got me angered, and I think I have never felt that angry or helpless, and I think I continue to carry that anger till today was 2005 when Yadema died and we thought it would be an end to the. His son took over, yeah, and yeah. his son did a coup and took over and following that he organized some elections in a rush. Of course he lost elections but then he deployed soldiers at every single ballot in the opposition stronghold to steal the ballots. In fact, if you go to YouTube and you Google Togo election 2005, you'll find soldiers carrying and stealing ballots, which has never been seen anywhere at that time. Today we talk more about internet censorship, but Togo was one of the first countries in the world to have ever done that for elections, and that was in 2005. They shut down the internet, the telephone communication, they shut down the all international radios. And the massacre literally took place, citizens. Within a week, more than a thousand people were killed. A UN investigation that followed up eventually stated that at least 500 were killed, but the numbers are more than a thousand from all the, the investigation led and documentation provided by human rights organizations on the ground. So that was a very tragic moment. And I had this anger that how could they do this to us? And that was the moment that I decided that Fournier Simbi must go. And I promised myself that I would dedicate my life to fighting until I see his vision fall down.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. It's really interesting as well when you mention communications being shut down, especially like how we've seen some African governments ban things like Twitter. This sort of thing was happening back in 2005. And how would you say activism has changed since you started in your teens until now? And especially in terms of tracking what's happening in Togo?
2: I think that's one of the proud moments that I have. I can proudly say that I was one of the first cyber activists in Togo. Mm. I was one of the first people who started using the internet to resist, to organize, to raise awareness, to criticize, and everything. Initially, when the former school movement was funded, I was the only known face of the movement. I remained the only known face for the movement for many years because the rest of the team didn't feel safe enough to come out in the open majority of them and then for strategic reason we decided that the less people that know and they connect the movement to the more ability we have to to continue doing our work so i was very vocal in fact on the leading to the foundation of the movement i I did a speech on February 26, 2011, in which I asked for Nassim to step down, and if he doesn't, we'll come for him, and we wouldn't write until we see him fall. And that was the very first time, actually, in Chogo's history that a girl defied the step down. And of course, it came with severe backlashes. Like, I have no idea myself or my family and my entourage, and, and that continued to have an impact till today. Eventually, I was literally seen as an enemy of the state and a terrorist. But what I want to Draw attention on was that none of this would have been possible without the internet. In the Mm -hmm. beginning, some people, even in the opposition, didn't take us seriously. We'll have nicknames like, oh, you guys are just computer activists, like beyond the computer, you don't have any power. But it wasn't until 2014 that I initiated an action that surprised everyone, both from the government and the opposition, the diaspora. That kind of like made me gain a huge followership in Togo and make people start to realize that actually the internet can be powerful. I actually had the, exposed the private numbers and the cell phone numbers of every single member of the parliament and including some ministers and asked people to call them and ask them why they're refusing to reinstate term limits. Because we were in a campaign for of term limits. Wow. And I placed the first phone call myself to the leader of the majority in parliament which is the ruling party and he insulted me called me names threatened me and hang up but then i recorded a conversation put it on social media it went viral and people started bombarding them with calls to the point where they held another session at the parliament to discuss how a girl living outside a country wants to terrorize them, that's the term they use, and want to intimidate them. Members of parliament enforce them into voting a law you don't agree with. My action was simple because they voted against term limits on the basis that the Togolese people don't want term limits. So my call was that, let them know that you want term limits because apparently they don't know what we want.
1: They don't know. <laughs> yeah.
2: We'll call them to let you know that you want term limits. And that action actually gave a lot of people some sense of power because we live in a country where we don't have any contact with our members of congress or even any government official. They are like semi gods. You don't approach them. Their houses are heavily militarized. Nobody comes close to them. Nobody speaks to them. They look down on everyone. In fact, one of the members of parliament said, "How can a common citizen dare ask me an elected an <laughs> elected <laughs>
1: Wow.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I no. uh, because I uh, apparently they don't even know what it means to be a member of parliament. <laughs> they don't understand. <laughs> that.
0: Yeah, that's the point, though. No? Like
2: <laughs> <laughs> the common citizen actually is your boss and, and yeah. all them answers. They, they felt so entitled and they don't think they did the work mm-hmm. for us. And after that, things just continued. The introduction of WhatsApp also made things much easier. Internet more mm. accessible. In fact, for some people in Jogo, when you talk about internet, the only thing they use internet for is WhatsApp or Facebook. Some don't even have Facebook, it's just WhatsApp. Because the advantage of WhatsApp is that you can just send audio recordings and you don't need to know to be literate and know how to write before you can participate. As long as you send mm. messages, you are also in the action. So that also contributed to taking the struggle to a next level. And more activists started coming up using their real names in their face because they realised that they could actually start resisting openly.
0: And do you think that the oppressive regime that then, as you said, WhatsApp became more accessible and to an extent later Facebook, do you think these oppressive governments see social media as a threat? The fact that it's able to mobilise activism in this way? They know it is a trait. It actually is a trait.
2: They used to underestimate the power of social media until they started seeing how it's bringing down some of the most difficult or some of the most repressive governments across the world, from Tunisia to Egypt, etc. Then they realise that, hey, uh, these citizens are really up to something with social media. The one thing that keeps most authoritarian regions in power indefinitely is their control over people's fear. They manage to instigate a huge amount of fear among the, uh, within the population to the point where people think that they are being watched all the time. The behaviors of people who grew up under a very repressive authoritarian government is extremely different. People feel watched, people feel spied on constantly. People live in constant fear of abuse, and as a result, they self-censor themselves. And to nourish the fear, they rely on propaganda. And back in the days, only they could control the media. Whatever media doesn't speak to their advantage, they'll shut it down, they'll just arrest the journalists and they'll kill them in some cases. Mm -hmm. But now with the internet, you have citizen journalism, citizens reporting themselves. And in addition to that, you have people having a tool to express themselves. So information coming, not just from them, the government, information that they cannot necessarily control or prevent. In the days, they will tell you that A equals B and you have to accept it. And today, you have people coming from everywhere saying, no, A can also be equal to C or D. So the internet has actually kind of like reduced the level of control they have over people, especially the psychological control they had over people. It has kind of like opened people's mind even more. And that's the one thing that they hate the most about this internet thing.
1: So you spoke earlier about being a woman and being seen as disruptive. And there's a lot of fear amongst the population. And the activism and actions you're taking aren't small. You know, you're a hyper-visible African woman. Is there ever an element of fear that you feel especially at the start where you were very much the face of the movement has fear ever played a role in terms of deciding how you move forward?
2: Yes in fact in my book I wrote an entire chapter about fear. Fear has played a role. People will describe activists like myself as being fearless but that is so far away from the truth but then what I say is that our fears are misplaced because what we are actually afraid of is a phobia. It's a phobia of a government. It's psychological. It's not a fear that can necessarily materialize. And I tell people, when you look at the number of people who die from the consequences of poor governance, it outweighs far, 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 far more the number of people who get killed as activists or in protest. And when people realize that we actually die every day because of these people feeling provide us with the most basic infrastructure we've accidents yeah. on the road to the absence of ambulances to extremely poor health facilities where pregnant women deliver their babies on the floor literally the poor governance the corruption is killing us at a huge rate and we fail to see that that is the kind of thing we should be afraid of dying useless death because of a corrupt leader because of an oppressive regime that we cannot hold accountable so i started promoting what i would say positive fear the kind of fear that will lead us to taking action against the injustice and the abuses that we are living instead of the kind of fear that will prevent us from taking action so i say if you are afraid and your fear is preventing you from doing something then you need help you need to overcome that fear it is not a normal thing when the fear is paralyzing you for fighting for your life because it's not just about fighting for what is right it's about fighting for our life it's about protecting ourselves if our fear is preventing us from doing that then we are putting ourselves in a harm way so we have to shift the fear of the regime to the fear of the consequences of that regime's poor leadership and governance and once people started realizing that hey the risk of me dying of malaria of an accident of even a pregnancy for women like myself of cancer in togo are much much higher than the risk of me fighting against the government
0: then people will realize that
2: they don't have to continue fearing the regime unnecessarily
0: and also taking the action. Yeah, yeah, I really like that, redirecting that fear. And I guess you could say that's a factor in how your movement has been sustained through generations. And as you say, your father was a dissident and he suffered the consequences of that. And your grandfather was protesting for independence and now it's your turn. How do you sustain this? Like what motivates you to keep going?
2: Honest, the only thing that motivates me to keep going Mm. It's really the future, it's the past. Mm. What I mean by that is I am extremely knowledgeable of the level of sacrifices that people have made for betters here. We still live under the authoritarian government, but we have far more freedom than the likes of my grandfather have enjoyed during their youth, or that my father has enjoyed during their youth. And the stories of abuse and the horror that they have gone through in prison of their colleagues being tortured to death of them witnessing those deaths the stories are so graphic that Mm. i don't want those sacrifices to be wasted because those sacrifices were made for us the younger generation and it will be unfair that those people have sacrificed their lives have gone through so much pain to make our lives better and we refuse to do the same for the future generations. When I first started becoming very known on the internet in the early 2010s, one of the things everybody was telling me, either people I know or I don't know was, are you even aware of the risks that you're taking? Do you know how dangerous this government is? The thing is, people actually thought that I was attacking the regime so openly and so fiercely because I didn't know how bad they can get and I didn't know how dangerous they are. So people would tell me things like, do you know they can kill you? Do you know they can arrest you? Do you know they can torture you? Do you know they can kill your parents? Do you even know how much risk you're taking? And what they don't actually know is that it's because I know how far they can go that I am willing to, to put a stop to this. And when I tell people that, in fact, I have more details of how this regime tortures people than you do. And it is because I know that, and I know it's not okay, and our children cannot continue living in that tomorrow that I'm fighting them because somebody has to put a stop to that. So when I look at those sacrifices, the way it was graphic, I remember my grandfather walking almost 300 miles from his village to town to protest for independence, him spending time in prison, his children dying as a result of him, his political choices, my grandmother losing 10 of her 12 children. Those stories
1: are what keep me going. It's interesting that your motivation stems from the past and really utilizing that to Push and drive you forward. Everything you're doing is building on the foundations that the likes of your grandfather and father had created. An interesting point I wanted to further explore with you is around a topic that you raised during your TED talk. You talk about how those living in free countries, especially in the West, tend to assume that those who are oppressed tolerate and are very much comfortable with their position, and that those living under non democratic states are not as intellectually advanced. I wanted your thoughts on Western media's reporting on Togo story and those of other oppressed countries within the continent on the whole.
2: Thank you. I have lived in the United States for some years, and during those years, I was a college student and I was, was politically active as well. I understand, I appreciate, and I respect the way American youth are really politically active. Don't get me wrong. But then When I received comments like, how can you people allow people to rule you for 50 years? You know, it's very condescending. It comes from the perspective that people actually willingly decided that they were going to be abused by the same family for 50 years. Or that people are so weak and so foolish that they will allow it to happen. And one thing I tell my friends or the public in this world is that the democracy you are enjoying in a country that you didn't build it, you inherited it. So you are in no position to judge those who are building theirs. And I used to say this before the rise of populism in the West. And with the rise of populism in the West, I started realizing how vulnerable their society is and how even more vulnerable their people are in the face of authoritarianism. Because the very little acts of tyranny that their leaders display especially under the Trump administration, is nothing, absolutely nothing compared to what we see in countries like ours, and we resist, and we fight back, and we don't give up. An American journalist has been suspended from reporting at the White House, and then the court lifted his suspension. In Togo, he wouldn't even be suspended. He would just be killed, and his body would be thrown in the sea. That's the way it works. So I want people to understand that, Across the world, regardless of where people are born, their race, everybody aspires to be free. Nobody wants to be abused. Nobody wants to be oppressed. People don't want to be controlled. And living in a country where you are enjoying freedom should put you in a position of gratitude, understanding that you are here today because somebody paid the price for you maybe 100 years ago or even farther than that. And you should put yourself in a way that you're doing everything to continue protecting your society from falling back into that and possibly giving some help to those who are also fighting to make
1: their countries or their communities more free and less abusive. That's literally hit the nail on the head. It reminds me of that classic line around how you don't choose where you're born. You know, it's All based on decisions and events that happened years ago, which led to countries having a particular structure. It's important to recognize that and appreciate that your situation has been built upon over the years and Mm. supporting those countries that are still struggling with achieving freedom.
0: And I think it's also to do with the lack of understanding in the West and with the rise of populism and not understanding the history of their country and also the history of these countries that are currently under oppressive regimes. And one of your blog posts talks about how you as a disillusioned African citizen talks around how individualism blinds those from seeing how and why instability and cruel political leadership drive immigration. Have you noticed any change in terms of how accommodating they are, especially in the US? And we can see that here in the UK there's increased hostility, particularly towards you know migrants. But how has it been in the US?
2: It is exactly the same in the US, and it's even worse for people crossing from Mexico, Latin America. Mm. The majority of those who cross illegally into the US cross from the southern border. It is the exact same thing. You have seen the Trump administration put children in cages. The immigration system in the US is a nightmare. And I was never an illegal immigrant in the United States, but despite the privileges that I enjoyed as a legal immigrant, I hated it every single day, which was what motivated me to leave, even though returning to Togo wasn't safer. Eventually, I left Togo again, but then the reason why I left the United States was because of the growing racism. And I said, I would rather live in a country where I can be arrested or killed by a government because I'm fighting for the right thing than live in a country where I have to endure people looking down on me. I didn't really become aware of my blackness actually until I arrived in the United States because that was not an uh mm. that I carried in Togo. But then eventually, I, for me, the United States has its advantages in terms of civil liberties, and citizens can always organize in some ways. But the treatment of black people in general and the racism—it adds to my anger, and I feel like I have so much to deal with already. Yes, <laughs> to add that on top. Yeah, I was going to say to I add think that, that I don't on want top, yeah. to be in that struggle, but then emotionally yeah. it was becoming too much to be I wrote an article about it, saying that. Maybe if we fight hard enough to free our countries from those corrupt leaders, we will build an Africa where our brothers and sisters in the diaspora will return and people will stop abusing us wherever we are. So that was also one of my motivations for wanting to come back to Africa, because I believe that fighting for Africa and making it better will actually reduce the negative perception people have over us. But the story of immigration itself is a very single story from the way it is reported to the way it is discussed. When you look at the data from the UN, when you look at the migration data, people in Western countries migrate more than everybody else.
0: (laughs) They're called
1: expats. (laughs) Yeah, this is honestly, that word, I do not understand. When When you marry to Africa, the data shows that
2: more than 95% of Africans that migrate goes to another African country. And less than 3% of Africans that migrate go to the US or Europe. But when you listen to the media, you will think that 99% of African migrants are going to Europe and they are flooding Europe. But the reality, Mm
1: And there's no one left in the
2: yeah. continent. Yes, it? but more than 3% of Africans migrate
0: to yeah.
2: Europe. When you look at the numbers of refugees that countries are holding across the world, like countries in the global south are accommodating far more refugees and countries in the West that have more resources, more money, more infrastructure, and are in a better position to help. Kenya, for example, has more than 5 million refugees on its land. I don't even think that France has a 500,000 before they start screaming that much. But the problem is that the West has never, ever been comfortable with others wanting to be part of their success. They want people to join them in their country based on their needs. The mentality that they have developed since the slave trade era to the colonialism era is that we bring people here to serve us. We bring them when we need them to work in our farms. We bring them when we need them to work in our households as help. We bring them when we need them to fight during our wars. But when we don't need them for labor or we don't need them to feel our dying population, so we can continue having families in certain rural areas, we don't want them to come. And what they are bothered about is people wanting to come without their permission or them not having a specific need for them, which is why the former president of France, Nicolas Sarkozy, talked about immigration choisie, meaning they select the quality of immigrants they receive. If they want teachers, if they want doctors, if they want nurses, if they want engineers, they select them. Meaning that for a continent that is already struggling to have an educated workforce, we will invest in educating our own. And because at the end of the day, we can't employ them, the West actually uh, connects them for them to work in their countries. So it's literally that like we plant and they reap the fruit. It is always at position of them taking and never giving back. That is the problem. And that problem is deeply rooted in racism and they don't want to acknowledge it. When you look at the data, they travel more than we do. They migrate more than we do. Over 20% of Western migrants come to Africa. Less than 5% of African migrants go to Europe. So who should be complaining? And when they come to Africa, whether you want to accept it or not, they come and collect our opportunities from us. Um, they will never come and work low-skilled, unpaid jobs like we go to their countries and we unskilled and low-paid jobs. When they come, they establish businesses that destroy all local businesses because we can't compete with them. We don't have the resources. When they come, their skin alone is a privilege for them having access to resources, to loans and everything, and they drive gentrification. In almost every single capital city in Africa, the neighborhoods where white people live are the most expensive. And the moment white people start liking a neighborhood, I'm not saying it to sound voices, but the moment white people start liking a neighborhood, then the Black cannot afford it anymore.
1: Yeah, we're pushed out. Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. But now imagine if it was the contrary, that we Africans arrive in Europe, and then the moment we settle somewhere, the whites have to move to the village. They they will hate us 100 times more than they already do. Like, they are hating us for living as the most unpaid, the poorest communities in their countries. Now imagine if we were to be the wealthiest communities in their country, like they have always been in our country. It comes from a position of them feeling entitled to greatness, feeling entitled to being in a position of decision-making, feeling entitled to being the one choosing who should do what and who should live where and how. And now they are creating policies, policies that is aimed at closing their doors to migrants from the global south, but that in the long run is going to have repercussions on movements within our countries. They are providing resources to our government to do what they are calling reinforcing borders. Those borders didn't exist before they set a foot on this continent. People have always moved freely. And now they want to reinforce borders because they want these borders to be controlled in such a way that we don't end up in their country. But by doing that, they are literally closing the gates around us. And this is going to affect us because Africans have always moved to other countries and other communities for greener you know, pastures, whether it's for education or whether it's for employment. Or sometimes there is a saying in my village that a poor man is a man who has never traveled. Back in the days, people would send their kids away to just go wherever because they believe that when you travel, you build the resilience and you acquire knowledge that makes you a strong person. And that can be valuable to your community. But we are losing that because of Western migration policies that are extremely rooted in their racism and the fact that they can't allow Africans, not just Africans, people in the global south to profit from their own labor because the majority of the wealth they have acquired was through the abuse of people in the colonies in the global south anyway.
1: It's an interesting point you make around that relationship between the West and the continent and a country like Togo has a long standing history with France. I just wanted to understand from your perspective around how France has controlled and helped mm-hmm. maintain the dynasty.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know we tend to say that colonialism has ended but the only colonial power that is still in the world today is France and people don't know Mm-hmm. Francis continues to be a colonial power in every aspect. So, the struggle for independence in Togo started in 1946, right after World War II, because Togo was given to France and England. Togo was a former German colony. Yeah. And Togo was among the countries that were to receive their independence in the midterm. The short term was the Group A, they were to their independence immediately. The midterm was Group B, were to received their independence within five years following World War II. So people in the colonies started fighting for independence and which led to the French amending their constitution and allowing Africans to partake in their parliamentary elections. And in those parliamentary elections that they held, there was supposed to be a parliament member representing his colony from every single African country. So the Togolese organized themselves and they presented someone, the independentists, they were the people who were in support of colonialism, which the French supported. And then there were people who wanted independence and the French didn't want the independentists to win the elections. Unfortunately, the independentists won the elections in 1946, making it the first member of parliament from Togo in France. After that, the French decided that we will never win elections in that country again. So how did they proceed? they removed the local traditional leaders and appointed their own people. And when the following elections were to happen five years later, and that was 1940-51, they refused to provide voter IDs for anybody who had ties with the opposition, meaning the independence group. And during the election day, they actually stuffed the ballots and... The progressives who were the one in favor of colonialism won. Sivanus Olympio was already a co-founder of the liberation movement called CUTE. He was actually one of the most educated people in Africa back then. He had a degree in economics from the London School of Economics. He had a degree in law as well. He spoke six languages fluently, French, German, Dutch. English and he was really brilliant, and he was the head of Unilever in West Africa. He resigned from his position, he moved to Togo to face the struggle. And that's when the independence movement became very prominent. In five years in 1956, French organized another election. And now they say that Togo wants to become autonomous. So they wanted to actually turn Togo into a department like they did with other countries in the Caribbean, the Guyana, French Guyana. But French Guyana eventually got its independence, but the countries like Martinique became departments, literally. And autonomy means that we don't want independence, but we'll have some form of autonomy and control over our country, but we still remain under French control, like Mayotte or something like that. So the rig that prevented Olympia from running in that election because he was so popular in Togo. And how did they prevent him from running for election? So when Olympio moved to Togo, his company paid his salary in his bank account in Ghana. Why? Because Togo was split in two. One third of Togo was with the British. And later, that third of Togo eventually joined Ghana, the Cape Coast, to form Ghana. And the two-thirds of Togo was under French control. So there are some Togolese citizens who found themselves, who were born in the English side and then became Ghanaian eventually. And some who found themselves having families in the hospital. So Olympio had his account in Ghana and it was illegal to import foreign currency from one colony to another without the authorization of our colonizers. So when Olympio was in Togo, he wanted to build a house, so he called his architect and he wrote him a cheque to go and touch the money in Ghana. They arrested the architect they found the cheque, and then they arrested Olympio for processing foreign currency, which was illegal under colonialism. And they denied him of his civil rights for five years. He could not run for office or he could not vote, which is why in the 1956 elections, Olympio couldn't be a candidate. So they organized a scam elections, We didn't work, and it failed. And they claimed that Togo wanted autonomy and not independence. And the goal was to actually convince the UN to not allow Togo to have his independence because he wanted to continue being under the French administration. So the independence movement people organized a campaign, a huge campaign, which I said my grandfather took part of across the country and the collected thousands of petitions back in the days when there was no telephone communications. So to prevent them from moving, the French banned them from using public transportation. So for them to move from one city to another, they had to walk, which is why some of them, like my grandfather, walked over 300 miles by foot to be able to join the city for the independence protest. They did that and they managed to petition the UN and say that the elections the French conducted here was a fraud. We want independence, and these are the signatures of Togolese citizens who want independence, and we want the UN to investigate. The UN, therefore, sent the former ambassador of Haiti to the UN, whose name was Max Dorsenville, to come and investigate. And Max Dorsenville established the fact that, indeed, the elections were fraudulent, and he called for new elections. And those new elections, the independence. One and that's how Togo became independent. When Togo won the independence, the French said that they would not give us our uh, independence unless we pay back every single money they invested in Togo for building roads to public transport to healthcare, and for infrastructures. They wanted a refund just like they did to Haiti. So to avoid the consequences like it happened in Haiti when they did an embargo which sunk Haiti's economy, Olympio decided that for two years Togo will make the sacrifice of refunding everything. And he sacrificed more than 60% of our national budget into refunding France. And two years later, we paid off our colonial debts to France accordingly and we became independent. The next step for Olympio was to create an independent currency because all the colonial countries were using the French currency that was created for the colonies called CFA. It was actually called franc colonial français which means the french colonial currency and that french colonial currency kept 85 percent of our national reserves in france and we cannot print more money without that permission we cannot borrow from our own money unless they allow it and if we borrow from our own reserve we pay interest on it so said that's nonsense and it has to stop so on december 12 1962 the Parliament of Togo under Olympio's jurisdiction voted for the creation of Togo's currency. And a month later, Togo was to officially leave the CFA currency on January 15, 1963. Exactly two nights before that day, Olympio was assassinated by members of the French colonial army, including Eyadima Nassimbe. That's how the recolonization of Togo started. And ever since, the military regime in Togo literally acts as a mercenary group for France. They participate in every single French military operation in Africa. In the past 20 years, there have been 16 French operations in Africa. Whenever an African heads of state or government has anti-French tendencies, they either remove him by coup or by rebellion. And that continues till today. The French government sells armaments to the Togulese military regime. In fact, they built our army because Olympia refused to build an army, which maybe was a mistake, but the colonial army became the Togolese army and the continued To abuse the people of Togo the exact same way they were doing it during colonization. So in Togo, our struggle goes beyond fighting a military regime. It is actually an independence struggle.
0: And that independence struggle, yeah, like it's still being played out. And it's great for us to get the background history on Togo and why it's so important to understand the background history and what happened during colonization the world of France both then and now and also to understand why Togo and other Francophone countries are in their current position. So in the present day where are you at with your movement and how can our listeners show solidarity and deepen their understanding on what's going on in Togo?
2: I think it starts with them trying to acquire more knowledge over Togo's Mm. It's in history and try to support the ongoing Togolese resistance movement, both in the diaspora and in the country. The one thing that the government of Togo benefits from is the fact that they are unknown to the world. Unlike other military regime across the globe that you often hear about, Togo is so anonymous, it's so invisible to the point where even neighboring countries of Togo like Ghana don't have no clue what's happening in togo people just think that oh it's a very small country people are having fun they're happy with their dictator probably but the reality is that the togolese government is very sophisticated at controlling information at censoring information and even recently they have purchased a spyware called pegasus which they use to infiltrate dissidents social media accounts and spy on them and shut them down so That censorship and that absence of information is what has helped them continue being there and continue abusing us in impunity. Because the moment that people will gain knowledge of how brutal and violent they are, more action will happen. Even the French government will start being embarrassed about being associated with them. But for now, they continue to benefit from the full support of the West because they are unknown. So raising awareness is the biggest contribution in the struggle
0: for Togo. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And that's what we find. There's an absence of knowing what's actually going on within the countries across Mm -hmm. the continent, particularly in the way Western media reports things. And there's not really a way of knowing what's going on until you actually delve into it. Right. Thank you so much for chatting with us, Farida. I've just been nodding the whole time you've been talking.
1: Yeah, it's been amazing. (laughs) Thank you so much for your time. It's been great. (laughs)
0: Thank you so much. (laughs) thank you
2: you so much for the opportunity i i really appreciate what you are doing and as i said raising awareness is really important and your show alone does that already and i'm really grateful to you for doing this thank you
0: very very much so thank you for listening to this bonus episode you can find farida's twitter and we've also put her ted talk in the episode show notes astrid you bought farida's book
1: yeah, I did. I did. I needed to keep the learning going. I've honestly been massively fangirling. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I have bought the book and we will do a post because I'll keep it. But I do like passing books forward and stuff, paying it forward. and Yeah, like that. absolutely. So we will post it later on once I've done reading. So any other French speakers out there. Yeah, it's, it is in French. We have to just stress that. <laughs> yeah, it, is, it is in French. Yeah, feel free to respond and then I will send it across our it over
0: so we'll have one more bonus episode next month so make sure you are subscribed or following this podcast so that you get that episode when it drops
1: bye everyone everyone. bye